Well, this being the first Lord's Day of a new month, we have our practice to have an open forum discussion, and that means you have an opportunity to ask a question, which if it's unto edification, at least I think it will be, or it could be, we'll move in that direction. Uh, if not, as I mentioned, uh, we have a really good backup plan this morning if there are no questions, but feel free to ask a question. Vivian, go right ahead. Question. If they have a, a question, no, I'd rather address that's fine. Go ahead. Um, question came up a few days ago how our sin, how our fallen nature is inherited. Is it a physical inheritance, a spiritual inheritance, or is it both or? Yeah, yeah, that's really the whole question of the nature of evil. What is evil? And um, I'm not sure we have a, a clear answer. I mean, the answer that many have given is just the, the deprivation of the good. If uh, the whole matter of evil is a question of our distance from God, of, of God's presence with us. Um, and, of course, in sin, there is the absence of the divine presence. And so um, there is something, though, that, that is inherited. Uh, it, it comes from the result of just being part of a race that's fallen into sin. Is there some kind of a deficiency in the, the human race that Adam and Eve change biologically? It's a moral deficiency. Whatever it is, it does consist in just the, the, um, the proneness of the human heart to, towards the doing of, of, of what is evil. And it is something that is inherited just in terms of birth. We're, we're born without whatever it is that would keep us from doing evil, the presence of something that um, um, makes us prone uh, to doing evil. Now we say of our children that uh, we don't have to teach them to do evil, they'll find a way to do it themselves. We have to teach them to do what is good, because we recognize there is that uh, proneness in, in our nature. Just the, the way in which uh, original sin is communicated to us, how it comes to us, um, I think we can say it has some biological component, but just the mechanism, I mean, I don't know, we don't know, we can, we can make all forms of speculation, but this is not something that is, that is, that is revealed. I mean, I think the, the, the answer that the scripture gives is that man, God made man in his image and in his, in his likeness. So there was that capacity to fulfill the reality of being a living, visible representation of the living God, which is what an image is. An image is a living, visible representation of, um, of, uh, of, of what you worship. Um, and uh, we can mirror God, image God, in terms of the way in which God constituted human nature, uh, to have him in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts, and um, to walk in his ways. Uh, the, clearly the ability was there, uh, coming from the Creator's hand. But then after sin comes, then we read that Adam had a son after his own image. So the son is now no longer imaging God directly, but imaging his father, Adam. It's part of our uh, uh, reality that we're the son created sons. We're created sons. And so as created sons, we uh, image God. Um, but through sin, we become disinherited sons. There's still that sonship relationship. Um, we're sons by reason of creation. But yet there is a sense in which we are outcast sons. We're sons that have been exiled from Eden. And um, God must do something to bring us back. And so, um, again, it's, I, I, the reason I'm, I'm kind of you know, stuttering on the matter is there are no really good answers. It's just the reality that uh, sin um, is a moral reality that brings us to imitate our father. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father it is your will to do. So it's a question of one of paternity. Who's your father? Is, is, is God your father in the fullest sense? Are you an adopted son, a regenerate, born again, son or daughter? Or are you an outcast from his household? Um, so, you know, we are either properly imaging God we're imaging our human fathers because, like Adam, like uh, um, Adam's children, they bore his image. Are we imaging the devil because we're children of the devil? It, it's a question of spiritual paternity, and I'm not exactly sure how that fits in with the biology of the thing. How it fits in with uh, 
um, how we're constituted physically. It's a moral and spiritual reality more than anything. So that's the best I can do. Yeah. Yes, Tim. You got the you got the opposite viewpoint. Go ahead. No, no. This is, I don't know if it has something to do with that, but I heard a short the other day, and it was, it was on the, when the Jesus, when Jesus uh, met the leper, okay. and, and he touched him, and he says, uh, you know, you know, you're, you're forgiven, I think that's what it's saying. Yeah, there's different things that Jesus yeah. said to lepers yeah, depending on the passage. He put his hand and touched him, saying, be clean. I am willing, be cleansed. Be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. And... I'm kind of wondering, you know, in other places in the scripture where it says that Jesus took upon our infirmities, you know, in what sense uh, is there a, is a physical reality to God taking our infirmities, our, our physical sicknesses, or is it just a, a picture of what he has done spiritually for us or to us? Yeah, again, I would say it's a question of uh, what the theologians call the already and the not yet. <laughs> there's, there's a part of which, a part of all of the blessings of salvation that are ours in um, full measure, uh, but not the fullest measure. There's the full measure of what we will be that comes to us through the power of a new birth. But it's not, the, we don't perfectly image God. We're not perfectly... Um, cleanse of all of our sins because we fall into sin and we acquire new defilement. Uh, Jesus says uh, if, your feet are, if, you, if, if your whole body's been washed, you're fully clean, but you've got to clean your feet. <laughs> you, daily you're walking in pads that bring new, new dirt, new defilement. You need daily cleansing. That's why we need to pray daily the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, but in one sense, we're fully clean. Because we've been cleansed in the blood of Christ with a full cleansing and a full forgiveness, but yet there is that daily reality of sin and there's not the complete obliteration of the possibility of sin and the presence of sin until we get to glory. So, I mean, there are the blessings of the already, but we live in anticipation of, um, of, of the future, the things that are not yet, but the things that will come to us in terms of final salvation. And I think that's true, spiritually and physically. I think in terms of um, you know being cleansed from sin uh, as a leper, um, can that cleanse sinner from leprosy, acquire leprosy again? Well, yeah, <laughs> likely they can, but there's a very real cleansing. Um, there are very real physical infirmities that Jesus lifts from our lives when we become believers. Maybe it's an addiction to smoking, or maybe it's a, a proneness to getting drunk and being alcoholic, or whatever. The part of the such were some of you. And because we've been lifted out of the morass of whatever that addiction was, or that practice was, or that bondage was that we once were in in sin, uh, it's going to have its effect upon us even physically. That, uh, you know, we're going to walk in. Uh, not in the things that are going to bring some of the things that uh, were the diseases that came upon the Egyptians, for instance. As when they're taken out of Egypt, they don't get the, sin, the physical infirmities of the Egyptians, but they get the physical infirmities of the Canaanites, perhaps. But, you know, there's certain benefits that come to us, even in terms of our physical well-being. Uh, the peace of God that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, imagine somebody that's filled with constant stress, all this life, he's just on, his nerves are just shattered. Is that going to affect his physical well-being? Yeah, well, of course it will. You know, you know, my wife gets angry at me. I can sleep at night when terrible, terrible things happen. Well, they happen, but I can't change it. I can't do anything about it. So I'm not going to stay up all night and worry about it because it's not going to help. And that's not to say I've never stayed up all night worrying and sleeping, uh, uh, having lost sleep as a result of you know, distress or whatever. But in, in the sense that a lot of the things that bring physical, um, the, you know, either it's practices or, or even just the, just read about, uh, there's a book called The, the Body Keeps, its, Keeps the Score. And it speaks about how stress and, and, and fear and, and worry and, uh, those sort of, sort of things that just affect the, the body in ways that uh, bring a great physical distress. So, you know, I believe that there's all kinds of benefits that the gospel brings to the totality of our humanity. 
And it doesn't have to be miraculous healings. It can be just the fact that we're out of practices that lead to disease and sickness. But the ultimate deliverance does not come to us until uh, we're perfected in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the statement that Paul makes in Second Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, First Timothy, First Timothy chapter five, uh, probably says it better than what I'm trying to say. He says in a prayer that concludes the, the first letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, set you apart to God with fullness, with completion, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, that's all of you, that's the totality of your being, with reference to both the outer man and the inner man, the soul, the spirit, the body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Thessalonians. I'm sorry? Yes. First you said Timothy. You said I said Timothy? Yes. First. And then you said Timothy. Okay, I'm sorry. Thessalonians. I'm sorry I said Thessalonians a couple of times. But anyway, First Thessalonians 5.23 is where I'm at. Then may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So in whatever way, that whole process of what we call progressive sanctification uh, brings us to greater measures of fullness, of um, uh, conformity to, to, to Christ uh, uh, spiritually and in our souls and our minds and our thoughts and our affections and the things we love and the things we desire. It's never perfect till we get to glory. But he includes body in this whole picture as well. That there is a sanctifying impact that the gospel brings the inner life. But even in, even in the outer man as well. I know he says in the Corinthian letter, though our outer man decay, the inner man's being renewed day by day. Our, outer, our, our bodies age. <laughs> These faculties and abilities we had when we were young that we don't have when we're old. Um, but yet, God is the God who will raise the body. And God is the God who's concerned that the body as well will be perfected in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we live life in the body and glorify the God in our bodies, even our bodies grow more and more accustomed to doing the things of God. You know, it's like brushing your teeth every day. If you don't brush your teeth tomorrow, when you're accustomed, when you get up in the morning, and you have that little ickiness in your mouth, you grab the toothbrush and you start brushing. Don't do it tomorrow, and you're going to feel, oh, I, there's something I didn't do. I'm accustomed to it. This is the pattern. It's kind of like the auto, autonomic nervous system, the things that you aren't even aware of, your, your breath, the, 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 um, your heart rate, rate of course. <laughs> um, but the things you normally do, the fact I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we even put on a pair of pants, one leg all the time. Mine is the left. Left leg goes in first, then the right leg. I can't do it the other way. I can. But it's not the way I'm accustomed to doing it. Because long years of practice in my body makes that sort of the natural way to do things. For me, just the absolute natural way to do it. But the other way would just seem to be... We're creatures of habit. Again, we're images. And that means we imitate. And we imitate God. Not that, but our imitative imitative faculty makes us do things repetitively, makes us to do things in a way that simply we imitate a pattern that just has been there for just, and to get out of that pattern is just something wrong. It's our kind of like our default mode. The body glorifying God becomes habitual. Prayer. If you're if your custom is to kneel down in prayer, I mean, get 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 to the place where you can't kneel any longer. But if that's your pattern, but to pray is something you're going to do on a daily basis because that's something you've grown accustomed to doing. So that's my point. We live life in our body, and our body is important. We don't serve God without our bodies, and um, it's in the health of our spirit and our soul and our body that we serve God, you know, spiritually. And it's never perfect in this, in this life. But perfection comes at Christ's coming, when we're fully conformed to God's um, image perfectly at the coming of Christ. I think that's, a, to me, a helpful thought. That the whole process of sanctification in this life is always in part 
but it comes to be perfected at the coming of Christ. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And this, this process of complete sanctification is not something that happens instantaneously at a prayer service, like the Wesleyans used to teach. You get entire sanctification, complete sanctification. Just come forward and pray through to complete an entire sanctification. No, the entirety of our sanctification is, is something that's progressive. It, 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 it moves towards a goal, but doesn't arrive at the goal until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that the um, prayer of Paul is answered. The God who calls us is faithful. He surely will do it, and he'll do it completely at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Sue? because not, we're born in sin and dying we will die. Our bodies from the beginning are going to start to you know, decay. Before that, Adam and Eve, they were, they were going to live. Yes. So there is a sense in which sin brings... Yes. Yes. Because again, the moral, the moral aspect of it is that we become separated from God. And I think the process of the separation of soul and body that happens at death is a result of that first initial great separation of being separated from God, being separated from the presence of God. All kinds of natural things occur. But yeah, the, the, and again, death is not just a physical thing, although surely the process does be, you're right, the process certainly does begin. But it, it's even a more important thing than the day that you eat thereof, dying you will die, that there is a death that took place in terms of separation from God. There's that spiritual death that brought the man and the woman to flee from the presence of God when formerly they would run to the presence of God. There's something that uh, happens in man that leads him to say it's, it's, uh, um, the woman that you gave me, she uh, instead of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, you know something went on as soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, dying he will die there was that aspect of spiritual death that changes the human being wholly and completely in all of his relationships his relationship to God and his relationship to others as the man and the woman death enters in to all those relationships it enters in um, you know and then at the end of course there is death uh, the physical aspect of it the physical component of it yeah so um, yeah it's all part of uh, um just the fact that you know these are spiritual. I, I think again, it has a physical component, but ultimately the physical component all stems from the reality of man being made for God to live in the presence of God to be perfectly conformed to God, and where that gets disrupted, all manner of evils come, and uh, things go from bad to worse. And ultimately, physical death is the final thing that cannot be countered, but for the salvation that comes in Jesus, that you know, brings ultimately the final uh, death of death at the resurrection. So, anyway, nice to, you know, all these are interesting things to talk about. I'm just not sure we have all you know, clear information in the scriptures how to conceptualize all of it, but uh, hopefully some of the things that have been said have been helpful. Anything else? Yes. Mike. What's that? Back the backup plan. <laughs> you know what? I do too. Well, this morning we're coming to the end of our studies in the Gospel of John. And as I've been kicking it around in my mind what to do after that, I've been, first of all, thinking about the fact that we left the study of the other Gospels when we hit the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6 and in different places in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But that's one event that all the Gospels address. And so I thought that was um, a good place to go back to John. And when we got back to John 6, I never left John. And we're now in 21 and we're going to complete the book. So there's a lot of stuff that we didn't do in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that I'd like to go back and do. But I'm trying to figure out how to do it. So it's led me to go back into the studies of these other Gospels. And to just look at the ways in which each of these Gospels present Jesus to us. And it's, it's the same Jesus, but it's the same Jesus seen in, I think, different ways. Um, it, it, it's kind of like uh, 
You know, somebody, you know, you got five people that are all, oh, I remember uh, uh, Kevin Cochran and I went down to the Washington Gallery years ago and we saw Whistler's mother, you know, James Whistler's uh, portrait of his mother. It's actually called a portrait in, uh, in black and white, I think it's called. And it's stunning when you see it. It's just a small little thing. It's not, I thought it would be big, but it's not. But the, the, just the proportion, the light, whatever goes into making art great art, this thing had it. Because, you know, you'd be walking by and you stop and you look. But I looked all around and there were all sorts of people that were painting Whistler's mother. So uh, I don't know if there was a school assignment they were doing, something they were doing just out of a desire to do it, but they were going to paint a picture of, of a picture. And uh, I'm sure they all didn't do it all the same way. I'm sure especially if there are courses that have a more of an impressionistic way of, you know, drawing in different ways. And I think that's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, is they present Jesus in different ways. In accordance with, the, it's the same Jesus they're all looking at, but they're all approaching Jesus from a different uh, vantage point and seeing him in a bit of, bit of a different way, which gives us a stunning picture of Jesus when you come to collate all the information and see it, uh, Jesus in, in, through the eyes of each of these, uh, of these gospel writers. And um, what I'm planning to do, I'll just let you know this, is uh, in the lead up to Christmas, I'm going to go back to Matthew. And we'll do the Matthew uh, narratives of the birth of, the birth of, of Jesus and the, um, really do that up until, um, I think pretty much when we come to Jesus' baptism and the driving out of Jesus uh, into the wilderness. And it was in the course of reviewing that material of um, our Lord's history uh, that all the Gospels speak about. They all speak to some extent of Jesus being baptized by John into Jordan. They all speak of Jesus being driven out into the wilderness uh, by the Spirit of God and uh, fasting 40 days. But um, when we think of the Gospel accounts of the temptation in the wilderness, I think most of us, if I said, what what is it about, the temptation in the wilderness? Don't, don't, look, don't look at any of the versions and just tell me, what about what happened to Jesus in the wilderness do you remember most? Just throw it out. Temptation. I'm sorry? Temptation. Temptation. Yeah. Temptation Jesus by? Jesus powers to get out of a situation. I'm sorry? He was tempted by Satan to uh, use his powers, use his own powers to get right. out of the situation. You can think of the three statements that Satan made. If you be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. If you're the Son of God, cast yourself down from the temple. If you're the Son of God, uh, bow down and worship. I'm sorry, uh, uh, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of, of, of the world. You think of those three temptations, you can think of Jesus' three responses. You think of his responses that it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You can think of it is, it is written that you shall not tempt the Lord your God, that it is written you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know Mark gives us none of that. You aware of that? All those things are in Matthew and in Luke in a different order, but Mark gives us absolutely none of that. Interesting, isn't it? I want you to look with me at what Mark does give us. What Mark does give us. Look at Mark chapter 1. I'm sorry? Mark 1. Mark 1. Let's uh, start at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he had come up from the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And nothing about what Satan said, nothing about what Jesus said follows. Simply what said, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, if I was to say to you, this morning we're going to speak about the temptation of Jesus. 
This is the subject of the sermon, the temptation of Jesus. And I would say nothing at all about what Matthew says or Mark says. You'd probably be thinking, man, this is not going to be a very good message. Because Mark doesn't tell us a whole lot about this matter of the temptation of Jesus. If you really want to know what happened in the temptation in the wilderness, you've got to go to Matthew. You've got to go to Mark, uh, to, to Luke. You can't go to Mark at all. Now, that's the first impression. I just don't think it would be an accurate one. Again, Mark was likely the first gospel that was written. And what you have in Matthew and Luke is like an expansion of what Mark tells us. But you know what? What Mark tells us is sufficient. And it's sufficient to give an understanding of Jesus from his point of view of the concerns that he wants to present to us that when you really think about it is is quite stunning. It's quite amazing when we really understand what I think is, is packed into the, mess, into, into the statement. Because, I, again, Mark's, Mark's account of Jesus tends to give an economy of words. It's not a very wordy presentation of Jesus. He just doesn't go on and on and on and on. With, uh, although he does give us some striking details that the other Gospels don't give. Um, and so in one sense, he gives a fuller account because more details are there. But in the other sense, he uses less words. Everything is a straightway this, straightway that, straightway that, straightway that, immediately that, immediately that, immediately that, immediately that. that. Um, but what he says is vital. And it's significant and important in the light of the things that he's concerned to do and the things that surround the passage that we're looking at. So I want to spend a little time with you trying to unpack something that's some some of the things that are found in Mark's gospel Mark's account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness okay you all with me let's begin first of all Jesus is in the wilderness and he got there by the spirit driving him out into the wilderness so it's by God's own will he's found there and he was there for the period of 40 days and the thing that the other Gospels don't have, well, they have that he was tempted by Satan. And um, I think some of the Gospels have that the angels ministered to him. Am I correct about that? That the angels ministered to him is found in the other Gospels? And I'm hearing yes being said, so I'm going to just assume that you're correct. That the angels, um, yeah, it's there in verse 11 of chapter um, Chapter 4 of Matthew. So the angels ministered to him there. What's unique to Mark? The wild animals. The wild animals. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Um, And again, the 40 days just tends to be flattened out. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. In the other accounts, it seems the 40 days elapsed and then Satan came and gave these words of temptation and Jesus answered them and after that he was ministered to by angels. It seems like it's more in the other Gospels seemingly a more progressive thing. This happened and that happened and that happened and that happened. Forty days passed. Satan came and tempted him. Jesus repelled the temptations with the verses he quoted from Deuteronomy and then the angels came to minister to him. Here is he's in the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan for the forty days. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So there was satanic temptations that even preceded what happened in the three questions that the other Gospels tell us about. And the angels were ministering to him. It would seem over the 40 days he's being tempted. The angels are ministering to him as well. Seems to me that Jesus is out in the wilderness and in the wilderness we we have Jesus. And Jesus is in the wilderness, accompanied by demonic forces. So we have um, Satan, demonic powers are there in the wilderness for the period of 40 days. There are, actually I shouldn't put Satan on top, should I? Let's put him down on the bottom. Jesus is going to crush him under his feet, right? So we've got to put Satan at the bottom. And we've got to put the angels up here, right? And then it tells us he was with the wild animals. So let's put uh, wild animals. Uh, 
Now, these are not things that surprise us. The presence of angels and the presence of, of Satan, because the other Gospels tell us that. And when you think of a wilderness situation, um, what do we think about when we think about wildernesses biblically? What is the sense of what a wilderness would entail? Yes? Okay, you have uh, the people of Israel being brought out of Egyptian bondage, and then they're brought out into the wilderness. And that, that's immediate. That's not just the wanderings for 40 years. That's immediate. They come into the wilderness of Sinai, or the wilderness of Sinai. They come into these various places. And what's, what's true about a wilderness place? Well, you're not going to find um, things to eat or things to drink readily available. And that's why the miracle of the manna had to happen, the miracle of the quails when God brought them to feed the people in the wilderness. But you're not going to find food readily available. Wilderness places usually are like desert places. And certainly the wilderness of Sinai was like a desert place. It was a place of sand. It was a place, something the Sinai Desert. Uh, that's where they were. And um, there wasn't uh, readily available sources of water. Every now and again, you come upon an oasis, you come upon a well, but by and large, you're not going to be able to give drink to you know, a million and a half people that are coming out of Egyptian bondage. So these miracles are provided by God in order to provide for them um, in the wilderness, because a wilderness is not the place you want to live. Wilderness is not a place that is fit for human habitation. You pass through a wilderness to get to a place of habitation. Isn't that in one of the Psalms, Psalm 107, about the wilderness coming to an habitable place? I think that's in Psalm 107, that particular notion. But the idea is that it's a place that's not really fit for human habitation. It's a place that's fit, not fit for domestic animals. It's a place that's fit for wild beasts. They're able to survive. Camels can go long periods of time without needing to drink. Uh, not that they're wild animals. Uh, but other things that are wild animals, they could be scavengers that could feed upon anything and get by with anything. And um, Jesus is in that wilderness place, which is not fit for human habitation. There's not going to be uh, trees, and there's not going to be fruits, and there's not going to be water. There's not going to be all the things that you need to sustain human life in a wilderness. Now, he's there in a period of 40 days. That, I think, is kind of like the fact that uh, Moses went up to the mountain for 40 days to commune with God, and he fasted for 40 days. And so I think there's that aspect of um, remembering coming out of Egypt. Uh, there's 40 years that the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness uh, as a judgment. Uh, before God brought them into the land of promise, the second generation in um, the book of Joshua. So this period of temptation for 40 years, I think, is meant to, to replicate the, the Exodus experience. And I think that's really borne out more in Matthew's gospel, that uh, Jesus is the, is the essence of Israel himself, who, who replicates the whole experience of Israel um, we have, uh, again, we've done this before with uh, Herod the Great being the Pharaoh figure who puts to death the, the children, just like Pharaoh did, right? Pharaoh put to death the, who sought to put to death the Hebrew uh, children, the, the sons that were born. And um, Herod sought to put to death, or did put to death, his competition, and anyone that might be the king of the Jews um, by putting to death the children of, um, of Bethlehem. Um, and then you have uh, Joseph being warned in a dream to go and bring the child safely into Egypt. Egypt became the place of um, preservation. And then it says, out of Egypt have I called my son. It's a quotation of the book of Hosea, chapter 12 and verse 2. You find that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. That the words of the prophet would be fulfilled. It says, out of Egypt have I called my son. Well, what's that about? Now, yeah, Jesus is brought out of Egypt, but Hosea is talking about Israel in bondage in Egypt. Yeah, but you see, Jesus is redoing the history of Israel, coming out of Egypt, uh, having escaped uh, the Pharaoh-like figure, Herod the Great. And then you have um, Jesus coming to the waters, just like Israel came to the waters. And there he's baptized in the Jordan. And there's something of um, the beginning of his public ministry that came about through his uh, being baptized um, 
And I believe, uh, and then, then, then came this temptation in the wilderness. And again, I think all these things are happening to prepare Jesus for this matter of his public ministry. And eventually he's going to come to the mountain in Matthew's gospel, and he's going to give something like the law to the people, even as Moses received the law from God, he's going to speak like the very voice of God. And they're going to bring the people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to just simply say, be overwhelmed by this man who doesn't teach like the scribes, but taught them with power, with authority. Um, just like the people of Israel responded to the voice of God. I think you know, Jesus is the embodiment of Israel's experience. He's also the embodiment of the reality that he's Emmanuel, God with us. There's a whole bunch of things from, from um, the Old Testament that, um, that merge in the person of, of Jesus. But there's also this aspect of him being tempted in the wilderness as something preparatory for this public ministry in which he was in, to be engaged in. I think also something to tell us what the whole end of his public ministry was to be. And I think, again, when we think about um, Israel in the wilderness, when we think about um, coming through the wilderness into the promised land, uh, part of what God did in terms of that Old Testament salvation, um, Jesus also is he's doing the work of, of, of saving his people and um, I think, again, there's this movement from a place that's not fit for human habitation to a place that abounds in what is fit for human habitation. But it means that he has to go into the depth of, of what sin has brought, wilderness. Wilderness. Think about the book of Jeremiah. It says in chapter 17 of the book of Jeremiah that blesses the man who trusts in the Lord. He will be like a, a tree planted by the rivers of water. There'll be a fruit in its season. It's the whole replication of the first psalm in Jeremiah 17. The blessed person has constant streams of living water that are always producing fruit for the glory of God and for his own well-being. And then the blessed and the cursed person says, Cursed be the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his arm, and his heart departs from the Lord. He's going to be like a, a dry heath in the wilderness. He's going to be like in a wilderness place. He won't be able to see what good, when good comes. He's going to be cast down into a wilderness place. Again, a wilderness is a place that is not fit for human habitation, and it's always viewed in Scripture as an aspect of divine judgment. Being led away from the place of milk and honey, that abounds in milk and honey, in the land that God provides for his people, in a place where you're devastated, in a place where you don't have sufficiency. Jesus goes into that very place. He fasts 40 days, and, and he's in the presence Again, of, 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 of tempting, tempting devils and ministering angels. But then there are these wild animals. Do you think Mark just drew that in there for no reason? No, I don't think so. I think the wild animals are there for a specific purpose. And again, I think we understand it when we come to understand that Mark's gospel is a gospel that's very much dependent upon the book of Isaiah. I shouldn't say dependent upon the book of Isaiah, but it's always referring to the book of Isaiah. Mark's vision of Jesus, his understanding of Jesus, really does get structured by the book of Isaiah. Now, most of us love the book of Isaiah for that very reason. We find so much of Jesus in it, right? All the messianic prophecies, all the, the verses that Handel took to do the Messiah from, <laughs> you know, it, it abounds in those passages. Uh, unto us it's, a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders. You want to sing the words of Handel, Handel's Messiah, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. We love Isaiah for that reason. But notice how Mark begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in verse 1. And immediately, the very first words of Mark's gospel, after the opening title, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, again, I understand both um, Matthew and Mark, when they quote um, this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, they too say it's written in Isaiah the prophet, as the prophet Isaiah has said. So they do make reference to Isaiah, but I'm, I'm saying that, first of all, Mark's the first gospel written. Secondly, it's the first words that he actually writes about Jesus after the title, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then, as we noted some weeks back in our messages in... Um, I'm trying to think where the message was, that we looked at the fact that the heavens were open. And I don't remember what it was, but I know we've covered this recently, of the fact that... Uh, 
when Jesus is baptized, one of the things about Mark's gospel that's distinct from the other gospels is the other gospels have the heavens opening and the spirit coming down as a dove upon the baptized Jesus. But Mark has the heavens being scurzled. That amazing little word that sounds so much like what's going on. It's ripped apart. Scurzo. Just feel like something can get ripped apart just by saying the very word itself. The heavens were ripped apart. Where does that idea come from? Well, it comes from Isaiah 64 in verse 1 where the prayer is prayed, Oh, that you would scurzo the heavens and come down. Now, that's not the Hebrew version, but that's the Greek translation. What we call the Septuagint. The heavens was, were ripped apart. At, why? Because that God would come down. The presence of God. What Isaiah is concerned about in those latter chapters is divine presence. He's concerned with God coming. He's concerned with um, what uh, Isaiah 40 says in the quote of verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Whose face? Well, in the Old Testament, read it in chapter 40 of Isaiah. It's Yahweh. It's Israel's God. The messenger is coming to prepare the way for who? The way for Yahweh. The way for Israel's God. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What Lord? Well, the Lord of Israel. Who's the Lord of Israel? Well, the one whom John the Baptist appeared preparing the way for, Jesus. Jesus is Israel's God, come in human flesh. The whole desire for the presence of God from Isaiah is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. I think that's what Mark is telling us. And when Israel's God comes in human flesh, when the child's born and the son's given, to whom the government belongs, and he takes the place of power and authority in Israel... What happens? Well, something happens that actually affects, you know who? These guys. The wild animals. Where do I get that from? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 11. And this comes after the child being born, the son's being given. It comes after the prophecy concerning Emmanuel. God with us. What happens when God comes? What happens when Emmanuel comes? What happens when the heavens are opened and is torn apart and the Son of God appears and the government comes to be upon his shoulders? Well, Isaiah chapter 11 gives us a picture. Sometimes it gets called the peaceable kingdom. It's not a bad term for it. It's about what happens. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This, this is the sevenfold Spirit. It's the Spirit of the Lord, number one, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and with equity the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. So he's going to come to save the righteous, destroy the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist. The faithfulness will be the belt of his loins. His kingdom will come. He will inaugurate his kingdom. And what will happen then? Well, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, or shall dwell with the lamb. <laughs> what happens when wolves and lambs get together <laughs> in a sinful world? Well, the wolf is going to devour the lamb, right? going to feed upon the lamb. Now here they dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Now what's going to happen when a leopard uh, gets into the, the pen with the goats? Well, the goats, I don't think they'll stand much of a chance. The calf and the lion. I'll put those two together. They don't belong together. Why? One's a wild animal. The other's a domesticated animal. One is going to ravage the other. Going to tear him bit for bit and devour him. That's what they will do. Cows and bears will graze. The lion will eat straw like the ox. <laughs> There's going to be the, the, the taming of, of, of the wilderness and of the wild animals. There'll be this amazing transformation of God's grace, turning the wilderness into what, guys? You tell me. Into the garden. Into the garden. Right. The wilderness will become a garden. And um, again, you can look at Psalm 104, Psalm 145, and you see the picture of the wild beasts 
waiting upon the Lord for their food. What's, Jesus is out with these wild beasts. I don't know what wild beasts they were. I don't know if there were leopards. I don't know if there were lions. I don't know if they were... I'm not sure what's... He's out there with wild animals. And the wild animals are not eating Jesus. They're not devouring Jesus. I think he's taming these wild animals. And, and it's interesting. It says he was with the wild animals. It's not just saying he was somewhere distant from, cringing from, walking away from, avoiding the path. He's with the wild animals. And that same preposition is used with the disciples that, he, that they would be with him. The disciples would be with him. He chooses 12 that they would be with him. That they would be living with him. That they would be seeing the things he did and hearing the words he spoke. Jesus was with the wild animals. Taming these wild animals. And turning the desert wilderness into a garden. Look at Isaiah 35. Again, these other passages you can look at. Chapter 4, chapter 12 of Isaiah. Chapter 35 of Isaiah. Look at what it says. The wilderness... And the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. God's going to take the wilderness, the burning sands, in the words of verse uh, 7, and, and uh, it'll become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Um, the waters will break forth in the wilderness. The end, middle of verse 6. And streams in the desert. And a highway shall be there called the way of holiness. What's the point? The point is when the king comes, when the Messiah comes, he comes to inaugurate a new creation. I think it's more than just the new Exodus themes that you find in Matthew. It's, it's the new creation that Jesus comes to bring. It's, it's this taking of a disordered world where animals now become the foe of human life, become foes of one another. And Jesus comes and brings reconciliation. He brings all things back to its rights, all that was disrupted, all that was disordered by the reality of human sin. And he comes to bring it back to where God's designed it to be. And so he tames the wild animals. And I wouldn't be surprised, though Mark doesn't tell us, for 40 days he's making a garden. I wouldn't be surprised at all if out in the wilderness Jesus is, Jesus is gardening. Remember, it was Yahweh who planted a garden and put the man in it. And Jesus is planting to renovate the world. He's planning to make a garden. Um, Again, I don't want to read the scripture what's there, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you said, Mark, Mark, will you, will you head in that direction? He'd probably say, well, I think it would be too much magical stuff to maybe say he was actually making a garden out there. But man, yeah, that's the whole picture. This, the world's going to become a garden. It's going to become paradise restored. It's going to become the power of God's grace at work in, in, in bringing about a new creation. And I think that's where Mark opens up the gospel, his gospel, uh, bringing those realities of Christ's coming as um, um, the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, who rends the heavens, who comes down for the purpose of simply renovating the world, bringing it back to its rights. Uh, all that was lost through sin comes to be regained in the Lord Jesus. And I think that's the picture he gives us. He doesn't have to tell us so much about the temptation. The other Gospels do that. doesn't have to tell us too much about angels ministering. It's there. But the point is he's with the wild animals. That's his great contribution, I think, to the whole picture of the temptation that really does indicate uh, from seeing it through the eyes of, 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 Isaiah, of Isaiah that he comes to bring in um, this great renovation of a new creation. So... That's what I was kind of excited to tell you. <laughs> and I don't know if you share my enthusiasm for it, but I, I laid out for your, your consideration. It, again, it's one of those things that not everybody uh, hears those echoes or not everything resonates with you. Perhaps it resonates with me. But um, 
it's a glorious gospel, isn't it? It's a glorious salvation we have. Yes. So, uh, I, mean, I think you mentioned this before, but every time that we see, like, Jesus going to the garden to pray, you know, different areas of times the garden is mentioned that uh, it's all, it's, we can look at it from the standpoint in some ways that his purpose here is to restore all things. Well, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that every time, but I, I would say that it is interesting we have so much in the way of gardens that are bound up in our Lord. I just think his human delight in the kingdom of nature, you might say, and the, the creative works of God's hands, I think, contribute to that. Um, but wildernesses play a, a big part. He goes out to the wilderness to pray. Not only gardens, he goes out to the wilderness to pray. Maybe he overlooks the, the wilderness, this place that doesn't have habitation. And he says, you know, what a, what a, what a terribly strange thing that the creation that was made for human habitation is so devoid of human habitation. You know, we think of overpopulation <laughs> in our world today. And you look at so many places that are not populated at all. Um, but uh, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be, again, just a, you know, the, the teeming beauty of creation spouting life in, in, in all of its fullness and uh, human life coming to its full realization. So again, I, I don't think that we should so much center upon is it a garden, is it a wilderness? I think we have to concentrate on the great transformation that the grace of the gospel brings and Christ's saving work brings to bring creation back from this fallen condition with the briars and the brambles and the thorns and all the rest to this place of, um, of um, verdant fields and prospering trees and fruit-bearing um, bushes and, and all the rest. So, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, the, I think just that, you know, that major movement uh, from, uh, you know, from wilderness to garden is, I think, clearly, clearly seen from the ravages of a devastated creation as a result of human sin to a new creation in which righteousness and peace and joy is the prevailing notes. Well, our time is gone. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time we can consider uh, this passage in Mark that many times we would just overlook and think it has little to say to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be contemplating our, our Lord amongst these, uh, amongst in, in this wilderness scene filled with wild animals, um, actually providing a picture of what he's come to bring, a restored world, uh, no longer under the curse of sin, no longer under uh, the ravages of sin, and, and brought back to the fullness of its, uh, its original intention uh, to be the creation that in all of its aspects would sing forth the great praises of its maker. And so we ask you to be pleased to help us to consider these things, to give us understanding in them, Pray your blessing will be with us as we greet one another this morning and as we enter into the morning hour of worship as we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.